0: morning morning. it's great to be back here ministering and uh, serving with my dear friend Chris appreciate y'all being here today I want to look at a text in Romans chapter 1 so if y'all want to turn there if you were to ask me what my favorite book of the Bible is a fruit certainly favorite book of the New Testament is My answer is easy. It's the book of Romans. I love this book, and I want today to look at the early verses, some of the early verses that talk about the theme of this book. The book of Romans is an easy book to outline. I'll give you the three major sections of the book of Romans. You can remember these, and you'll have a handle on what this book is about. It's very simple. There are three sections to the book of Romans. There are 16 chapters. There are three sections. Chapters 1 to 8, chapters 9 to 11, and chapters 12 to 16. 1 to 8, 9 to 11, 12 to 16 are the three sections of the book of Romans. The first eight chapters, 1 to 8, are doctrinal, almost entirely doctrine and truth. 9, 10, and 11 are kind of a, par- a paragraph that deals with God's sovereignty in the nation of Israel and the Gentiles. Then chapters 12 through 16 are almost totally application, That's why Romans 12.1, I'm sure many of you know that verse, starts out with, I beseech you, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. So that begins a section, 12 to 16, of application, of truth, that Paul has talked about in the first eight chapters. Now I want to look today, particularly in chapter 1, at what I believe states for us the theme of, of the book of Romans. The theme of the book of Romans, I think, is the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, how we receive it and how we live it out. The righteousness of God, how we receive it, and how we live it. I believe that's the theme of the book of Romans, and we see it here in chapter 1. I want to start with verse 14, reading from the New American Standard version romans 1 verse 14 i am under obligation notice obligation to preach the gospel both to jews sorry both to greeks and to barbarians gentiles greeks are the gentiles to barbarians both to the wise the educated and to the foolish the uneducated thus for my part i am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in rome Now, why is Paul so eager to preach the gospel in Rome? Notice verse 16 and 17, which give us the theme of this book. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Notice why he's not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the power of God for salvation. Paul does not say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it will make you happy. He does not say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it works so well in everybody's lives. It just is wonderful. It it just makes your life a, a bowl of peaches. He doesn't say that, does he? Because many of us know that's not the case. The Apostle Paul himself, right, was imprisoned, was ultimately martyred for what? For the gospel, preaching the gospel. Paul is not saying, I'm not ashamed because this is just such a wonderful, sweet message that will make your life so happy and so good. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's what? It's the power, power of God for salvation. Earlier, we quoted John 1:14, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. To whom? To everyone, anyone who believes. To the Jew first. They received it first. Also to the Gentile. For now, notice verse 17. For in it, in what? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Out of faith, unto faith. As it is written, quoting from the Old Testament, the righteous man shall live by faith. The whole life is, starts with faith, ends with faith. It's all about faith all the way through. But in the gospel, I want to focus on this first. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now what is righteousness mean? mean? A very helpful hint or method of Bible study to understand terms and words in Scripture that are important, particularly ones like this, which are hugely important, is to see if we can find this word used in a non-theological context where it's not talking about a theological meaning, but it gives us more of a just core meaning of what the word itself means. Well, in this case, we can do that. Go back, if you have your Bible in the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25. We have some interesting words about marketing. Going to the market buying and selling produce or whatever you're selling or buying notice in beginning of verse 13 deuteronomy 25 this is marketplace language you shall not have in your bag differing weights a large and a small you shall not have in your house differing measures a large and a small you shall have a full and, here's the word, righteous weight. A full and just weight. You shall have a full and just or righteous measure that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So when you go to the market and you have a, a weight that says 16 ounces, I'm going to sell you 16 ounces of something. It needs to be 16 ounces, not 15, not more, not less, but 16 ounces. If it is 16 ounces, measures up to the standard, then it is a righteous weight. If it's a bushel, and it's really a bushel, (laughs) then it's a righteous bushel. So, what does the word mean? It means to conform to a standard. To conform to a standard. To conform to 16 ounces. To conform to a bushel. That's what the word means. Now, here's the interesting, important question as we move now into a Theological context. Does God have a standard? Of course he does. What is his standard? Perfection, right? God's standard is perfection, right? In everything that he is, everything that he says, everything that he does. He perfectly conforms to perfection. He perfectly conforms to perfection. Do we? No, of course we don't. This gives interesting meaning to a verse that many of you probably know by heart in chapter 3 of Romans, a verse often quoted when we're talking about the gospel, 323. Remember that verse? Many of you know this verse. For all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. Huh. we fall short of God's standard of righteousness. Now, does it matter how far short you fall? If you're really bad, then we know, of course, you're unrighteous. What if you just, you know, you're pretty good, pretty good person most of the time, you drive on your side of the road, you obey the laws, most people do. Fortunately for us, I don't know if you think about this much, but most people do obey the law most of the time. Which is a good thing for all of us, right? Does it matter how far short? No. James, right? If you're guilty of one, you've broken the whole law. One time, that's all it takes to be less than perfect, to meet God's standard. We are not a full 16 ounces, which means we are in deep trouble. Because God can only allow righteousness in His presence. Perfect righteousness. Go to chapter 3 of Romans now. It's a couple of pages. Turn a couple of pages over. God's righteousness, among other things, is what provokes him to punish sin. Look at chapter 3, beginning verse 24. Verse 24 of Romans 3 is so full of important theological concepts we could spend all year on this verse alone. But notice what he says, being justified, notice that word, (laughs) what an important word, Being justified as a gift, as a gift, by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. What an incredible verse that is. But we're going to move on today. Justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly, Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or satisfaction in His blood Through faith, now notice, this, what was? This was to demonstrate. What demonstrated? The death of Christ on the cross, his public death on the cross, demonstrates what? Or proves the righteousness, God's righteousness. Verse 26, for the proof, I say, of his righteousness, God's righteousness at the present time, That he might be righteous and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is the great demonstration of the cross? That God is righteous, that there is a moral law in the universe to which everyone is accountable. And we stand under the judgment of that moral law, the righteousness of God. The cross demonstrates that. The cross proves that. The cross shows us that. One of the big problems... For many in our current secular culture, philosophers and others who don't believe that God exists, many of them who believe that all there is is a natural universe, physical world, that's all there is. We call, we call them naturalists. One of their major problems is what Thomas Nagel, important. Atheist in our current culture, whom actually I have quite, quite a bit of respect for, given that he's willing to admit that his view has problems and questions. And one of those, he says, is, I cannot explain the idea of a cosmic authority. He says, for us who are atheists, one of our huge problems is that we don't know how to explain a cosmic authority. That is, somebody who is defining the moral terms of the whole universe. Not just a particular culture, but the whole universe. He says, that's a problem. Michael Ruse, who is also an important atheist in uh, Florida State University, one of his recent books, which I is very interesting. Books, if you're interested in these kinds of things, Michael Ruse's book called Atheism is very readable. And one of the things he says in there is the following quote: "Stomping on little babies for fun is wrong, even if the whole world thinks otherwise." In some very real sense, morality is Objective, outside the individual, or we might add also outside the given culture. Stomping on babies' heads for fun is just wrong. It's immoral, period, he says. No matter what anybody else thinks, that is evil. Morality somehow, he says, at least seems to be objective, That is, it's outside of our heads. Interesting question to think about. When you make a moral claim, something is right, something is wrong, you should not lie, you should tell the truth, those sorts of things. What are you doing? Are you just stating your opinion in some subjective way? Or are you saying something objective? Are you saying something that is based outside of your head outside of the culture, in a moral universe that gives it some teeth, that gives it some objectivity. And Michael Ruse says, stomping on babies' heads is just wrong. doesn't matter what you think about it or what any culture thinks about it. It's purely wrong. It's evil. So it appears that at least that has some kind of objective, outside of your head, basis. This is a perennial problem, you see, for atheism. Because they want to say things like this, that stomping on babies' heads is just evil. Racism is evil. There are things that we just ought not to do because they're just wrong. Their problem is they don't know why. What is the basis for that claim? What is the basis for that oughtness? Perennial problem in philosophy which is what I teach, as most of you know. How do you get from is to ought? What is the case to what ought to be the case? They don't know. Now, as you might imagine, if you're an atheist, the thing that you most often appeal to to explain things is evolution. This is how things have evolved. Human behavior, human society has evolved to where it is today. Morality is a product of evolutionary processes and survival, as is everything else in the world. Here's what Michael Ruse says about that. Quote, there is no reason to conclude that biological fitness at once equals moral virtue. In fact, the opposite is often true. And goodness demands that we go against our evolved natures. What? His explanation for everything is some kind of evolutionary process, but when he gets to morality, like stomping on babies' heads, biological fitness doesn't explain it. Survival doesn't explain it. Morality sometimes asks us to do things, calls upon us, gives us oughts and shoulds that go against our survival. For example, honesty sometimes can get you in real trouble, can't it? And yet we say that we should be honest. So Michael Ruse, in recognizing this difficulty, he ends up by saying... That morality has only the appearance of objectivity. In fact, he says this, the objectivity of morality is an illusion put in place by our genes to keep us social. It's an illusion. Stomping on babies' heads is just wrong, period, Is evil. Why do I think that? Well... Ultimately, I don't know, it's an illusion. Put in place by our genes to keep us social. This is amazing. Foolishness. The New Testament talks about professing to be wise human beings, right? Outside of God, outside of His truth. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And what you just heard is a piece of foolishness. I appreciate the fact that he thinks stomping on babies' heads is wrong and evil. Because I agree. But then he ends up saying, I don't know how to explain that, so I'm just going to say, ultimately, it's an illusion put in place by our genes somehow to keep us social. Well, our moral Universals and absolutes like stomping on babies' heads is evil, is wrong. Are they actually grounded in something real? Is there a moral universe? A real one, a real moral universe outside of our heads outside of our opinions outside of our feelings that defines moral absolutes what does romans 326 tell us there is <laughs> there is there really is And it's not just in your head. It's not just in your feelings. It's not just in your opinions. And who defines that moral universe? Who defines what righteousness actually is? God Himself the creator of the universe the transcendent one over the creation he is the cosmic authority over all of his creation he is the one who defines what righteousness is by his very being And how is that shown, according to Paul, here in Romans 3? By the cross. The cross. The great demonstration, the great proof of the righteousness of God. That He is, in fact, just. That He is, in fact, righteous. Therefore, He is and can be the final judge of all human beings. And he's the only one who can be the final judge of all human beings because he's the only one who's omniscient and perfectly righteous. This is why Jesus tells us don't judge each other, right? (laughs) Some of us are not real good at not doing that, are we? We're not omniscient. We don't know everything, do we? We don't know what's going on in somebody's life. We don't know... A lot of things. So we need to be very careful about critical judgments, right? God, on the other hand, knows everything. And He is then able to be and will be the righteous, totally righteous, fair, impartial judge of all human beings. He's the perfect, omniscient judge. Now, in verse 26, the cross shows, proves, that he is righteous, but notice the rest of that verse. He is just, he is righteous, and he's the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is righteous, he's just, even in justifying Those who have faith in Christ. This is amazing. The profound nature of what happens to us when we come to faith in Christ. We are unrighteous, right? We fall short of the glory of God. But what happens to us when we put our faith in Christ? One of my favorite verses in the Bible, maybe some of you have memorized it. If you haven't, I encourage you to memorize 2 Corinthians 5.21. That is an amazing, amazing verse of Scripture. He made him, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become what? Anybody know? The righteousness of God in Him. That should amaze you every moment of your life. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in exchange for our sin and our unrighteousness he would give us the righteousness of Christ so that now we are 16 ounces in him. Very important point here. That he is just, he is righteous, and he's the justifier. Very important point here, because we understand the cross was necessary because of the righteousness of God. Remember Isaiah 53? Predicting this event. Talks about how God crushed him. God the Father crushed Crushed God the Son. Violent language. God the Father put His Son on the cross. Demonstrating what? Demonstrating that He is righteous. And sin must be punished. Now that it has been. Hebrews, once for all, once for all, once for all. Notice that in the book of Hebrews over and over and over and over. Once for all, once for all, once for all. Jesus died on the cross once for all. Paid the price of sin once for all, once for all, once for all. Never to be repeated again ever. Because he satisfied was a propitiation for the righteousness of God by his death. God now can forgive anyone who comes to him in faith. But note, he forgives them righteously. That is so important. God is not Santa Claus. Just sitting up there being nice and giving people gifts and right, just because he's a big sweetheart. He loves everybody. Because of that, he just kind of, well, I know you're not righteous, but you know what? Nobody's perfect. I understand that. Come on into my heaven. It's okay. I know you're not totally righteous, but hey, nobody is, so... It's all right. I love you. Come on in. Really? Imagine... Imagine in a criminal court in Oak Ridge, there's a judge. Somebody comes before the judge and the judge says, sir, did you rob this store? And he says, yes, judge, I did. And I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. Well, will you promise not to do it again? Oh, Oh, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. All right, we love you. You're free to go. Another guy comes in. Sir, did you? Yeah, I did. I'm really sorry. You promised you won't do anything? Oh, yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. Okay. You're free to go. And this kept on happening. What would we do with that judge? We'd get rid of him, right? Why? He's a nice guy. He's a really nice guy. He's understanding. He's compassionate. He cares about people. But he's not what? Righteous. He's not righteous. In our moral nature, we know <laughs> that he should be righteous. That wrongdoing demands repercussions. You can't just break the law and get away with it because we love you. There are standards that demand response and punishment. Is God any different? No. Only His standard is perfection. Perfection. We're all in trouble with that one. But what happened at the cross? It's how important the cross is. Some people argue that the cross just demonstrates the love of God. He just loves us so much that he put his son there to show us his love. Does he love us? Yes. Is that why he put him there? No. No. He put them there, Paul says, as a proof or demonstration of his righteousness. That sin, the penalty of sin, had to be paid. But he paid it. He's the propitiation. He's the satisfaction of the righteous demands of God on the cross, one time forever. And now... God does forgive anyone who comes to Him and puts faith in Jesus Christ. But He doesn't do it because He's full of mushy sentimentality. And just, oh, I love you, love you, love you. No, He does it righteously. He forgives us righteously. That means he really has forgiven you. <laughs> that means your sin has really been forgiven forever. Because a price has been paid for that sin. And by God's grace, we don't have to pay it for ourselves. But someone had to. Jesus did. How do we get this righteousness? What is Paul saying? Romans 1. By faith. Not by works. Can't earn this. Can't earn this. Cannot earn your way to heaven by good works. It's by faith. We have to humble ourselves. We were talking about that earlier in in the songs. We have to humble ourselves. Recognize that we are undone. We're lost. We're not a full 16 ounces and turn to God in faith. If you have done that, how do you live your life every day? Same way, by faith. Christian life didn't begin by faith, now it's continued by works. It began by faith, it continues by faith all the way through. It's not your works now that give you pleasing standing with God. That's legalism. He's not blessing you because you've been good. You don't do good in order to get blessed. That's legalism. You were created for good works, Ephesians 2.10, right? That you should walk in them by faith. Every moment. Faith is not just for missionaries. We tend to think of people like missionaries, pastors, people, you know, professionals in the church. Well, wow, they really have to trust God because they don't know where their next paycheck's coming from. They really have to trust God. They really have to walk by faith, right? Well, yes. But what about you? Well, I work at, you know, TVA. And I know what my paycheck's going to be. I know when I'm going to get it. I know how much it's going to be. Really? It's easy to fall into that trap, though, isn't it? To think that my life's all planned out. I, I've got guaranteed income. I've got this. I've got this. I've got this. No, you don't have any guarantees for anything. We receive the righteousness of God by faith. We live it out every day, every moment. By faith. Trusting God. For every breath. So I hope, I challenge you today, this week, that you will realize your life is a gift of the grace of God. Every breath is a gift of the grace of God. Trust Him, He's worthy of your trust. Trust him. Trust his grace and goodness in your life. Trust it for your marriage. Trust it for your work. Trust it for your health. Trust him for your family for every single breath. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Words fail us. Trying to comprehend this truth. Give us Teachable hearts and minds. Help us to immerse ourselves and meditate on these things. Teach us, change us, give us faith to trust you with every breath. Trust this day to you, our homes, our families, our work, our our very lives, Father. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death, demonstrating your righteousness the certainty we have of our hope in him because he's alive. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.